title of today's sermon is Flying Banner and the Woman in a Jar. And it's taken from Zechariah 5, 1 through 11. Thank you, ladies. Appreciate that very much. We're in Zechariah chapter 5, which has been alluded to by Bud as a difficult chapter. Hope that you understand it better when we're finished. Uh, I think I did, as I finished studying it this last week. Hope I can communicate that to you this morning. As we study it, let us always remember that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. Would you bow with me and let us ask him to guide us. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for today to be alive, to be able to arise and come here and meet with God's people and look at your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to fellowship around the word, fellowship around what we have in common in the spirit. And we ask, Lord, that we might leave here encouraged. Speak to us through this text as the spirit of God and uh, this vessel that he uses um, brings it forth and the truth that is in it for us today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. As I was a kid and growing up, one particular movie that uh, came on television once a year was my favorite. If you're over 40, you'll probably remember that every Thanksgiving, The Wizard of Oz played on television. It has a wonderful scene in it, and you can play that behind me, in which um, Dorothy and her entourage has a, have arrived at Emerald City. And uh, that's not Seattle, by the way, but the city of Oz. I think you started that in the wrong place, Danny, but that's okay. Uh, and as they prepared for an interview with the wizard, the wicked witch appears in the sky above riding on her broom. You can, you can just pass on that. Um, that's not the place I wanted She begins to write in the air, as you will recall. And you remember the words? Surrender, Dorothy. As I grew up, I was fascinated by things I saw in the sky. I can recall seeing single-engine planes pulling banners. You remember those? I saw it at the ballpark, Wrigley Field. I saw it other places. And usually it had some kind of a commercial message that they were trying to sell something with proclaiming the efficacy of the product. In this text today, we see the Lord will use two specific visual aids that are in the sky in order to teach people his will. He tells them through these visual aids that he will deal with their sin individually and corporately. Way back in the 1920s, we had a president by the name of Calvin Coolidge. One morning, he got up and went across the street for a worship service by himself. And when he returned home, his his wife asked him, What did the minister speak about this morning? His reply, Sin. So what did he say about sin? She asked her husband, silent Cal. He was against it. That's a very succinct way to summarize the text that we look at this morning. God is against any kind of sin. In this sixth and seventh division of Zechariah, we will observe that point quite clearly and see that it is applicable to our lives today. The Lord addresses the problem of sin in Israel. And in doing so, by doing so, We are given an open window into the social conditions of the day. And as you will recall, the surviving remnant of Jews had just returned from Babylon, and they were given one task to accomplish by God through his prophets. And that was to rebuild the house of the Lord. But because of political pressures from the outside, and because of the internal sinful state of the people, the temple work had come to a stop after only a couple of years. Israel had now just become another dusty colony on the outskirts of whatever ruling empire is dominating the world scene. 
Israel was loosely administered. There was no national identity for them to circle around. And worst of all, Israel had become morally bankrupt by her influence in Babylon. So therefore, crime was rampant throughout the nation and the guilty were going unpunished. Poverty was a universal experience of all those but the wealthy elites. The nation was in trouble. This sounds starting to sound familiar. The people were discouraged and despairing, despairing at what was happening. Yet one man, the man of God, Zechariah, had his pulse on the nation's temper. The prophet Zechariah had warned the people to return to God and he would return to them. So the people, even though they had a common faith, a common experience of wandering in the wilderness, and had been promised the blessings of God, they had gone wayward. They were disobedient to the will and the law of God. So Zechariah, in these prophecies we will look at this morning, conveys one simple message. Sin does not pay. At the time of accounting that is surely to come, they will not be able to claim that they are victims of a corrupt justice system. They were not duped by a failed economic policy. They will simply experience the judgment of God upon them for their sins. If they continue on this path of disobedience, the curse of God will come upon them, says Zechariah in these two visions today, both individually and corporately. Well, with that as our background, would you turn with me now to our text that we study this morning? Zechariah chapter 5, verse 1. You can find the text on page 943, I believe, of the Pew Bible. There's one right in front of you in the pew if you need to use it. And in vision 6, God promises to judge each individual sin. Let me preface this by reminding you of a common mistake the people of God of all ages make. They begin to believe in their heart that since they are doing God's work, that will somehow buy them a pass on Judgment Day. They believe because they've spent time rebuilding the temple of God, that God should be so pleased and glad with them that he would be willing to overlook some of their picadillos. Zechariah has encouraged him in that work. But the Lord warns them that their holy work will not defray his judgment. Certainly the rebuilding of the temple was a great work for them to pursue. But it didn't earn them any extra credit or some kind of a pass in this department of sin. Just because they were God's chosen people didn't mean that he would tolerate their sin. And that goes for us today as well. He will deal with our sin, purging them individually and corporately at just the right time. In verse 1, you'll notice that Zechariah lifted up his eyes, and behold, there was a, a flying scroll Now, to understand these two visions we look at today, we must remember that the ultimate actual fulfillment, the greater fulfillment of them, will not be in the day of Zechariah, but will come during the millennial kingdom when Jesus is ruling and reigning over the earth. I've mentioned this on previous occasions. All prophecies have a near fulfillment to the people that they're written to, and they always have a later or fuller fulfillment in time to come. So when it speaks of sin being purged, it speaks of the remnant within Israel, but it also speaks of Israel during the tribulation time. So these visions look forward, if you will, to a coming glorious future, and it also speaks to every passing generation. For you and me, that means God is relentless in purging sin from our lives and from our corporate body called churches. His desire is that we conform ourselves to the image of his son. Now you'll recall, because we went through the text, 
that Paul warned the Corinthians at the Lord's table that they must judge their own sins or they would incur the wrath, the judgment of God. Now, Paul was not speaking some kind of final judgment or eternal condemnation. Rather, he was speaking of temporal discipline in the lives of his children. Now, back to our text. Back in ancient times, there was no paper like we have it today. All things that were written down had to be done on plant or animal materials that were brought together and used often called papyrus, vellum, or parchment. These writing materials were made by the layering of plant material on top of one another or the gluing of animal skins together to make a larger piece of material to write upon, often called rolls or scrolls. Zechariah looks up from his dazed state, and what does he see flying through the air but this huge scroll? Now, the scroll wasn't rolled up as you would normally view a scroll and placed into a container, but it was completely flattened out, and it was like a banner hovering in the air. It was a visual aid. Everyone could see it and read the words that were upon it. And in verse 2, we begin to get the details of this vision. That is the writing that was upon the scroll. The interpretive angel, as always in the past visions, and this one now and the future, Asks Zechariah, what do you see? He answered, I see a flying scroll. It's about 20 cubits in length, or width and uh, length, and about 10 cubits in width. Obviously, much of the four previous visions and these visions that we look at today were not understood by Zechariah. And so that's why he's asked by the angel to tell him what he's seeing. I can imagine Zechariah squinting his eyes a bit to read, if he's like me, what was on that scroll. And the first thing he noticed was its huge size. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not used to measuring things in cubits. Are you? No, I didn't think so. But the standard measure of the day was in cubits. And a cubit was the length from the middle finger to the tip of the elbow. That traditionally had been around 18 inches. Now, just for for laughs, I measured mine, it was 19. So this is not a universal stated 18 inches, it's an approximate value. There are some who, when they read this text, they see what's called a royal cubit, or sometimes called a great cubit, which was 21 inches in length. So the size of the banner can vary a little bit, depending on whether you take the 18-inch cubit or the 21-inch. I don't really care, to tell you the truth. All I know is that the banner was big enough to read. It would have been, by either one of these dimensions, either 30 or 35 feet in width and about 15 to 18 feet in length. Or 30 to 35 feet in length and 18, 15 to 18 feet in width. I'll get it yet. But what was significant about this banner was what was written on it. We're going to get to that in a minute. Now, some have tried to make a lot out of the size of this banner, the 20 by 10 cubits, because that happens to be the exact dimensions of some things we find in Scripture. If you look back in Deuteronomy and a couple other places, you'll find that the holy place was 20 by 10, the holy of holies. We also find out in Exodus 26 that the uh, place called Solomon's stables was also 20 by 10 and that is where the holy scrolls were kept in the priest's worship. So the idea here is that God is dwelling in the midst of this place that's 20 by 10. And he's in the midst of his people. But what's really important is what's on the scrolls. And Zechariah tells us that uh, the scroll was 30 by 15 feet long or 35 by 18 feet long. And that it wasn't rolled up that it was floating in the air, that it's the exact same size as some of the holy places, and what's written on is really important. So that's, that's what this scroll is stating, is saying. We read, This is the curse that is going forth over the face of the land. Surely everyone who steals, these are the words that are on the scroll, this is the curse that's going forth over the face of the land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged according to the writing on the other side. So both sides have different writings on it. 
What was written on it, if you recognized it, was the very words of God. These words predict the coming judgment that God will bring upon lawbreakers. Now, you might not be aware that God oftentimes uses scrolls to communicate judgment to his people. (coughs) Excuse me, I had a little bit of a frog in my throat. Let me just share a couple of examples of that with you. In the book of Ezekiel chapter 2, we read the prophet's words. I looked and a hand extended a scroll to me. When he spread out the scroll before me, written on the front and the back, sound familiar? Were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Then he said to me, son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, this is Ezekiel, and he fed me the scroll and he said, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with the scroll that I am giving to you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak these words to them. Ezekiel was to take this scroll, internalize it, and then bear, disseminate the words to the people of God. That judgment was coming upon them. We see the same thing in John's vision in the book of Revelation. John sees a vision in chapter 5 in which his right, in the right hand of God was a scroll and written on it, and the inside and on the back were words of judgment. So both Ezekiel and John, and there are several other examples you can find in Scripture, in which a scroll is given by God and it bears judgment upon it for a disobedient people. I believe this is the task of every preacher of the Word of God. We are to digest, assimilate the Word of God, and then share it with God's people, telling them not only of the judgment of God, but the blessing of God as well. So the words that were written on the skull front and back that Zechariah sees flying above his head are the commands of God. On one side is the third command from Exodus chapter 20, you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And on the other side was written the command, you shall not steal. Now, if you're at all familiar with the Decalogue, you might be asking, where are these commands again found in the ten? And if you looked, you would find that the command not to steal is uh, the eighth command, and the command not to take the Lord your God is the third command. The first four commands, as you probably know, were man's relationship with the Lord. The last six are man's relationship with God. Man, And so these two, one on one side and one on the other, are smack dead in the middle of the commands on your relationship with God, and on the other side, the relationship with man. These two commands represent, in my understanding, the totality of God's law. I'm reminded of what James said to the dysphoria Jews in chapter 5 of his epistle. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. So this flying banner bears the message. You shouldn't steal and you shouldn't speak falsely. Covering all of the Ten Commandments. Everyone who steals, that is, wrongs his neighbor. Everyone who swears, that is, wrongs his God, is in great danger of what? Judgment. Clearly, The teaching here is that everyone is a sinner because we've all broken the law. Every man, woman, and child who's ever lived, I don't care if you're Billy Graham or the Pope, you've broken the holiness of God by breaking these commands. We are all lawbreakers. In Deuteronomy 27, Moses warned the people of God as they gathered together that the one is cursed who does not confirm all the words of the law. And all the people shouted, Amen. Paul underscores this same principle in the New Testament for believers today when he says, For as many as are the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things that were written in the book of the law and do them, or does them. There it is. Despite what the liberal denominations proclaim or what the Lordship salvations advocate, you cannot obey the law of God. 
To even think that way negates the whole purpose of the law and why it was given. The law was never given by God to save people from their sins, but to reveal to people their need to be saved from their sins. We read in Galatians chapter 2, these words by Paul, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even as we have believed in Jesus Christ, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh is justified. There it is. But if that wasn't enough, Paul continues... I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing, needlessly. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based upon the law. And then Paul sums all of this up, and I'm sure you know this passage from the book of Romans chapter 3, verse 20, where he says this, By the works of the law, no flesh is justified, but through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's only, it is only by the law that man learns that he is under the curse. Clearly, the Ten Commandments, the most succinct summation of the law, tells us that we're all sinners. We're all lawbreakers. We are all separated from a holy God. And in this vision, Zechariah sees the curse displayed quite publicly for the people to see. The banner says that everyone who steals and everyone who swears is under the curse. You lawbreakers. Now, the word for curse in the Old Testament is Allah. A-L-A-H. The word alludes to not only breaking the points of the law or the covenant, but it alludes to a curse that is placed on those who do this law-breaking. The word is often used in the Bible in conjunction with the making of a promise or a covenant. For example, in Genesis, when Abraham said to those who had his wife Sarah, then you will be free from my oath, Allah, When you come to my relatives, and if you do not give her to me, you will be freed from my Allah, oath. The word Allah, if one keeps his oath, is then freed from the curse. Keep the law, you're freed from the punishment of it, or the consequences of it. A few chapters later in the same book in Genesis, we read this same word being used again, where it helps by defining it for us. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you, and we said... Let there be an Allah, an oath, between us, even between you and us. Let us make a covenant, there it is, together. So synonyms for the word Allah can be curse, oath, covenant. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 29 where Moses uses it that way. He says there, you may enter into the Allah covenant with the Lord your God and into his Allah oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today. Finally, in Ezekiel, he uses it similarly when he says, For thus says the Lord your God, I will also do for you as you have done, you who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. This clearly says that the giving of the law was a requirement that it be kept. Otherwise, you would be a lawbreaker and you would bring upon yourself the consequences of it. That's why there are several chapters in the Torah, the writing of Moses, which is dedicated to outlining the blessings for keeping the law and the curses for breaking it. You'll find those specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30. Zechariah's skull, therefore, represents all of that, the totality of all the teaching that had been given to the Jews. And as you know, I've simplified this for you. This did not come from me, but I've passed it on to you. That obedience brings blessing, and disobedience brings judgment or discipline. Keeping the law brings blessing, breaking the law brings cursing. And this was a universal teaching. You'll recall that the Jews were to take 
the light that they were given by God to the Gentiles. They failed at that. This text says that they were to take it to the whole earth. Now, while it's true that the primary relationship of God at the time was with the Jewish people, God intended that they'd be the missionaries of their day and take his word to the whole world. And for not doing so, for failing, for breaking the law, they were to be purged or cut off. The word that's used there in Hebrew is nikah, and it means cut off. In this case, the lawbreakers would be cut off from the covenant people. They would be cut off from any relationship with those who were not lawbreakers, but were living according to the word of God. This is all summarized and written on that scroll by the use of these two central verses from the commands of God, the Ten Commandments. So in this sixth vision, Zechariah sees the flying scroll as a warning to the individuals within Israel to return to God. Now in verse 4, we have the angel's explanation of the vision. Look with me there. The Lord says, I will make my message go forth, declares the Lord of hosts, and it will enter into the house of the thief. There's the one law, the eighth law. And the one who swears falsely by my name, that's law number three. And it, that is the word of God, will spend the night within the house and consume it with its timber and stones. As the flying scroll goes across the land of Israel, it bears the message going into every lawbreaker's home and brings the conviction of sin upon those in the Jewish community that were breaking the law. Now again, Moses recorded the blessings and the curses that would come to the people of God because of the law. You'll recall that they gathered at Mount Ebal on one side and Mount Gerizim on the other, and these were read for them, the blessings and the cursings. The people had to take an oath to obey. And in Joshua chapter 8, we read that Joshua built an altar to the Lord on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the God, had commanded it in the writing of the law of Moses, and an altar, and they burnt offerings to the Lord upon it. He wrote there on stones the law of Moses. And when he had written it in the presence of the sons of Israel, all Israel with the elders, officers, and the judges were standing on both sides of the ark in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. He read all of the law, the blessings and the cursings, and all that was written in the law. And not a word of all of Moses that he had commanded was not read before the assembly of the people of Israel. God sent the word forth. That's what this text says to all the people. It brought upon them personal responsibility. What's lacking in our culture today? Each and every Jew was responsible how they responded to the law. They were either blessed or cursed. And in Psalms we read that God sends forth his command to the earth. There it is. And his words will run swiftly. The word of God is going forth telling of his power and authority to bless and curse those in the way they interact with it. Now, as I said, Israel was in a terrible state. There was crime was rampant. This promises that even if there's insufficient human agents in the land to punish wrong, God's word would bring retribution on every home and judge those within it. Ultimately, ultimately, God's purpose was in eradicating evil from the land. Maybe this is where the current administration got the idea of when a terrorist makes an attack in Israel, what do they do? They take bulldozers and take their homes down. The scroll tells them that the Lord has the power and the will to punish disobedience. They can't hide in their houses. They can't hide just because there is no judicial machinery to punish them. They will be found out by the word of God and they will be punished. They won't be able to plead ignorance because the scroll has flown overhead and entered into their houses. There is a time of judgment and they will not be able to escape it. You see, you see, The Lord takes 
sin seriously. Unlike our government today in America. Zechariah 6 vision shows that those who openly sin against the will of God will be found out and judged. There is no escape. Of course, this has not happened up to this day, not in Zechariah's day, not in ours. This looks forward for its fullest fulfillment in a time to come during the tribulation when God will punish evildoers. The Messiah will pour out his judgment and the bold judgments and all of that that we find in the book of Revelation. The curse will be dealt with. But now, Zechariah's focus changes from individuals to the corporate view of Israel, from individuals within the nation to the nation itself. Zechariah sees a large pot, a basket, one that is a lot larger than normal. It's oversized, just as the scroll was oversized, and as the scroll flew through the air, so the, we will see the pot does the same thing. In doing so, he symbolizes the widespread nature of sin within the nation of Israel. Looking at vision number 7, beginning in verse 5, we see that God will judge the corporate sin of the people and of nations. We read there, Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, Lift up your eyes, and what is there going forth? The interpretive angel says to Zechariah, What is it? And here we get the details of the vision in verse 6. And the angel answered and said, This is an ephah going forth. And again he said, This is their appearance in all the land. More on that in just a minute. The prophet here is asked to describe what he sees. What is it? But he couldn't. And so the interpretive angel gives him an answer. He says, It's an ephah. Well, we say, What is an ephah, right? I have no idea what it is. Do you? Well, I do have an idea. It's a large measuring instrument. A basket, a jar, or a pot, or some kind of container. It's been compared by some scholars to a bushel basket like we have today. The Jews used it to carry all sorts of common household items, and they also used it as a tool to measure. How much it measured? It's in dispute. Some say it was about 5 to 10 gallons of dry material. What we, sh- what we are sure of about the ephah is this. It had something inside of it. Now let me point out to you that the second part of this verse is extremely difficult to translate. It deals what was inside the ephah, but it's really hard to translate into English. And in fact, all of the English translations that are out there are all over the map. For example, a New American Standard, which is the Bible I usually use to preach from, says this. This is their appearance in the land. What does that mean? He begins, he prefaces that, the angel does, by saying, again, he said. So what does that mean? Where where did he say it before? I looked throughout all the text, and I can't find anything that says that, that something was appearing in the land previously in the text. How can that be? But others, translators, don't translate these words as their appearance in the land. They translate it another way. For example, the New International has a note in its margin which says that appearance is the Hebrew word ayin, which can mean eye literally. So it could be speaking the people's eye on the sin over the land, and therefore they interpret it to say or translate it as the iniquity of the people rather than the appearance in the land. Now, I know that's very different. Two completely different thoughts. But the I, if used figuratively, can be understood as resemblance or appearance or the object that is seen, in other words, in the ephah. Helpful to this discussion, and I know this might be a little bit more than you want, helpful to this discussion of understanding what this phrase is here in the Hebrew text comes from the Greek and Syriac renderings of the text, which were very early in the translation process. Both of those supply the term iniquity. This shows us that the initial understanding of the phrase uh, was not as an appearance, but as of iniquity of the people. The ephah, then, if we take it to be that, is measuring out the corporate sin of the land of Israel. And that fits quite nicely with the text, uh, the context which we have here in Zechariah 5. 
As you know, the returning remnant from Babylon had gone as farmers and ranchers, but they had come back changed. They were now merchants who worked in big cities and made a lot of money. When they came back from the cities of Babylon and Persia, they had changed. While in Babylon and Persia, they had picked up some very bad habits as merchants. While there, they began to do as the Babylonians did. They cheated at the measures. The ephah was the measuring standard in Israel. And they apparently had found ways to fool people. So they were quite adept at smoozing the scales, if you will, to cheat their customers out of their rightful weight. So the ephah represents the iniquity of the people throughout the land because they practiced evil in the commerce that they brought to the land of Israel. So here, and in Amos, we find these connotations of the sinful commerce that was taking place across the land of Israel. Amos speaks directly to it in chapter 8 and verse 5 when he, says, when he says this, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market, open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales? There it is. The sins of the people were directly related to their preoccupation with making money in the marketplace. So the ephah, the standard measurement in Israel, represents the evil that was taking place in the land. Now if you look in verse 7, we see that the ephah has something contained within it. We read, and Zechariah is startled by this, why? Because he's, by, what, by the way, because he says, Behold... A lead covering is lifted up, and there's a woman sitting in the ephah. Wow, this must be a pretty big ephah, don't you think? If it's going to contain Kim Kardashian. Now, you need to know that the lead cover was a standard amount of weight that was used to weigh things in Israel. So the cover is called a talent in the Hebrew here. That's a specific amount that was used during the practice of weighing grains. It shows that the sin of the returning remnant was practicing the babylization, that's what I'm calling it, the babylization that they had received while they were in um, bondage. They picked up the Babylonians' love for money. They had picked up their cheating ways. And this woman in the ephah symbolizes that. Why a woman? Well, oftentimes, women picture evil in the scriptures. If you know the wisdom, wisdom literature, for example, Solomon, when he wrote in Proverbs, the evil woman is walking throughout the streets of the city. Remember? You'll recall that Jesus spoke in one of his parables about the kingdom of heaven. He compared the evil to the leaven that was in the flour, and the leaven was spreading throughout the whole lump. You'll remember that. And who brought the evil? A woman. Then in John's revelation, he speaks of women in religious settings. He speaks about the church at Theatra, and there was an evil woman named Jezebel who called herself a prophetess. Tell the president I'll call him back in a few minutes. In chapter 17 of the book of Revelation, John speaks of a woman who is a great whore. Remember? And she represents all the sin in the world. So when Zechariah sees this woman in the midst of the ephah, he's talking about the symbolic nature of sin that has penetrated the whole country, the whole nation of Israel. Keeping that woman in check, however, was this lead cover. I know this is pretty symbolic and figurative, but just follow me along with it, okay? The lead cover keeps her in check. And when the lead cover is opened, the woman could possibly get out, right? So we get an explanation of all this in verse 8. Look with me there. He said, this is wickedness. That woman in there is wickedness. She's evil. She's bad. And he threw, the, threw her down into the middle of the ephah and covered her with the lead weight on its opening. The angel says clearly that, that this woman represents 
wickedness in the land of Israel, and that she's trying to get out and affect everyone. So the imagery here is really multifaceted. On one level, we have the ancient idea of a genie in a bottle, right? Power is contained within. If you keep that power under control, you can get all sorts of good things from it. At another level, there's the idea that evil can be hidden, that it's lurking within each household, because all households had ephahs. But then the imagery is sort of reversed. The vessel has to be mastered. The lid has to be kept on it. It has to be kept in prison. Otherwise, if evil gets out, it will control the whole household and the owner. All of us have evil in our lives, don't we? We like to keep it in the closet, like a little pet that we drag out from time to time to amuse ourselves with. This evil in the jar... If it was to get out, it would bring them all to ruin. So God must take divine action. The evil must be contained within the jar. The top must be slammed closed, and it must be taken from the house if possible. This wickedness is represented in the evil that had infected the nation of Israel, and it's civil, it's ethical, and it's religious matters. So we've seen God must... Judge lawbreakers, but he also must judge the principle of sin, of wickedness. And here, wickedness is represented within the nation as this woman in Ephah. Now in verse 9, we see God deals with this wickedness. Zechariah says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming out of the wind and out with wind in their wings, and their wings were like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the heavens and the earth. It's carried off. The wicked wicked woman is inside the ephah, the cover's been closed, and two women with wings like storks come and pick up the ephah, and they carry it off. So here we have symbolically, the removal of the ephah with the wicked in it from the land of Israel. We have some questions, though. Who are these two women? Some suggest that they're angels because they have wind beneath their wings. Others argue that nowhere in the New Testament are angels pictured as women, and nowhere in the New Testament do angels have wings. That's simply in the movies. But, in the Eucharetic literature that precedes this, the sister of Baal is pictured as a figure, a woman figure with wings. And the goddess Ishtar is portrayed with wings. Another question that we might ask is, why is the woman in the ephah signifying wickedness removed from the land. Some argue that it's like Joshua. Remember his filthy clothes were removed a few chapters previous to this? As an act of God. An act of his grace, really. So do the, wi- do the women with the wind, the wind, Ruah, can also be understood as the Holy Spirit, are these actually beings doing the work of God? Is this the Holy Spirit doing the work and removing the wickedness from the land? Which is it? Well, we just don't know. I don't know. There's not enough evidence. And I find myself in very good company when I say that because even Zechariah doesn't get it. Look with me at verse 10. Where are they taking the ephah? I don't get what's going on here. Where are they going? Well, the angel doesn't offer him any information on who the unidentified women are with the big wings. He only tells Zechariah what they were up to. And in verse 11 he says, he said, Go build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set up there on her own pedestal. This is the picture of a temple, by the way. The two winged women transport the ephah containing the wicked woman out of the land of Israel to the land of Shinar. How many of you know what the land of Shinar is, or Shinar? I didn't think too many of you would. I have a dog at home. Her name is Lacey. When she goes to the back door and starts standing there, looking at the door and sniffing around, I know it's time for her to go out and do her business. So I get up, and I go out, 
And I open up the door and I say, Lacey, take your wickedness out to the land of Shinar and leave it there. You've all heard of this place before, you just don't remember. In Genesis chapter 11, we read about it. As they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Who is they? These are the descendants of the flood, of Noah. Later on in the text, we find that Cush was the son of Nimrod, who had become the mighty one on earth, and he set up a kingdom of Eric, Akkad, Kalna, and Babel in the land of Shinar. As you know, that is the focal point of a rebellion against God in which people tried to reach heaven by building a huge ziggurat. This place was located at the Euphrates River, just exactly the same place the great horror of the book of Revelation will be. The land of Shinar is the picture of all wickedness and evil in the world. Again, in Genesis, we read this. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And then they used the brick for stone, and they used the tar for mortar, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose reach will be into heaven, and we can make ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the whole earth. Then the Lord came down to the city, And the tower which the sons of men had built, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have the same language, and this is what they do. And now, this is what they purpose? The impossible they will do. Come, let us go down. Confuse their language so they cannot understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them from here and there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. And therefore the place became Babel because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Evil is scattered over the whole earth, even into Israel. The people who rebelled against the will of God were now ever-present everywhere in the whole world spreading their confusion in spiritual matters, spreading idolatry in their moral uncleanness. They built the Tower of Babel there. They wanted to reach God, but God destroyed it. And that horrible place is now Iraq, which is occupied with cities like Mosul, Baghdad, and Ramallah. Evil in in wickedness reigns in those places. It is the place of the Antichrist Islam who butchers people, hangs priests on cross on our Good Friday. They are evil, wicked people, and they were out to destroy anyone who claims the name of Christ or Abraham, just as the Tower of Babel was trying to be God. So this wicked woman in the ephah was trying to displace God. That's why she is Confined to the ephah and taken to the place to build a temple for herself. A temple will be erected to this wickedness. Perhaps another ziggurat. It will be in the land of Shinar. But God is going to destroy it once again. So these women take evil, wickedness to the place called the land of Shinar to await the judgment that must come on another day. The point here seems to be that evil must be removed from the land of Israel. And that hasn't happened yet, has it? I've been there several times, and I've seen evil in that place. The Jews are still looking for their Messiah. The wickedness is still in the land. But the stage is being set for the final judgment which will come upon Babylon, the land of Shinar, and the whole earth. Revelation tells us there is a day coming when good will defeat evil, when Christ will return and judge all wickedness. So what does this mean for you and me today? I think embedded within the Old Testament is the gospel of Christ's second coming. 
This text makes it very clear that Israel is not ready for the Lord's return. Paul said regarding Israel, for they are not all Israel, which are Israel. A great day is coming called the tribulation in which the sin of Israel, the wickedness that is in the world will be removed and it will be taken to that place for its final destruction. Until that time, every individual must be dealt with, purged of sin, cleansed. They must receive the Lord Jesus Christ, which we know will happen in the tribulation when all Israel turns to Messiah Jesus. What is said of the nation of Israel in the time to come should be said of the church today. Each and every member of the church needs to have its sin purged from it. That will happen on the day that we call the rapture. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns in the air and calls for his church, we will leave the flesh behind. Our bodies will be purged of wickedness and we will enter into his holiness and be with him forever. So what we see here in miniature is a picture of the time to come. Yes, Zechariah was speaking to his contemporary fellow believers, the Jews, and there was a small fulfillment of it. And that the people did, once again, promise to obey God. We will see that. But the final application of this is not until the end of the days, the end times. And there is a day when the sheep will be separated from the goats. There will be a judgment. Satan and all evil and wickedness will be cast into the abyss. Transported somehow, maybe by two women, in a basket, a large basket for sure, to the land of Shinar. All this is figurative. All this is pictures for us. All this is encouragement for us to look for the promises of God to be fulfilled in a coming day. That is our hope. The world has no hope, but we do. Because we see God working his will in his way, and the events that go around us are happening in our life. May the Lord Jesus Christ return today at this moment. Let us pray. Father, help us to be ready for your return, the return of your Son. Help us, Father, to purge the sin from our lives so that we will not be ashamed at his coming. Help us, Father, to remember these promises given to the Jewish people and by extension to us. Help us to look for that glorious, wonderful day where we will be called home at the rapture. We cannot wait to see our Lord Jesus face to face. We pray this in his name. Amen.